Say It Loud Network and Mean Old Line Media presents the history of being black. Welcome to the history of being black. I am your hostess, Eunice Elliott. So on the history of being black, we will just be discussing more than black history. We'll be talking about what it means to actually be black in America. And as most of us know, that is a day by day situation. And we'll be talking to thought leaders and scholars in the realm of American studies and American history. On this first episode, we are super excited to be joined by Dr. Reginald K. Ellis, who is assistant dean in the School of Graduate Studies and Research at Florida A&M University. Welcome, Dr. Ellis. Tell me a little bit about your specialization uh, of study. So my research and study is really the history of historically black colleges and universities in general, but the history of black college presidents uh, during the Jim Crow era in particular, I uh, uh, my interest in that field grew in undergraduate school uh, when I did a research paper on the founding president of what is now Florida A&M University, Thomas D. C. L. Tucker, and I just kept that project with me throughout. And uh, to be brief, uh, my my goal was to really find out what led these individuals to fight for the development of historically black colleges and universities, and to kind of debunk the myths and stereotypes that all of these individuals were tyrant leaders um, and and that they also, these institutions, played a role in the long, longer civil rights movement. So when you say it piqued your curiosity in undergraduate studies and then you pursued your doctorate and now you are a professor that's now teaching uh, students, what is your view of how it's almost like the world just in 2020 Uh, said, oh, there were black people and things have happened, especially things that happened in the Jim Crow era that are still pretty prevalent today. What is your perspective being in the uh, academic side of what we're experiencing in real life today? One of the things that I tell my, uh, especially when I was teaching freshmen, I would tell my students all the time in an introduction to African-American history course, uh, the students would always tell me, oh, Dr. Ellis, uh, what happened during the institution of slavery? What happened during... uh, Reconstruction, what happened during the Jim Crow era, what happened during the civil rights era would not have ever happened to me. And I laughed at them and told them it's happening to you right now. Right. And so uh, if you go back many years ago, this is before I was teaching. You had the James Byrd incident in Texas where this gentleman was drugged. Uh, to his death. And then in our students' lifetime, many of my students uh, from uh, the state of Florida, they were alive when the Trayvon Martin uh, lynching occurred. Of course, this particular summer where you know, in spring, Amaya Arbery, Rihanna Taylor, uh, of course, James, uh, George Floyd. And so these individuals now understood when I say that these incidents are occurring in your life, uh, in the same way that they were occurring historically, while it may not have impacted you individually, these incidences of race and racism were occurring around you and your life, whether you knew it or not, was being impacted by those events in ways that you didn't know it. And now through the age of social media, because of COVID, where we all had to sit down and really watch what was happening. Not everyone understands uh, the impact of institutional racism 
So what's interesting when you say your students uh, say, you know, that happened in the past. I feel like so many people, especially on social media, I get offended when I see that meme that says I am not my ancestors. And I'm like, you wouldn't have survived a day (laughs) in your ancestors situation. Uh, Can you speak to when you do share that, especially with your younger students and you point that out to them, how much of what we are living through we uh, don't realize is historical in nature. Each day is a day that somebody will be reading about one day. Correct. I tell my students all the time, what will uh, your grandchildren ask you about 2020, 50 years from now, right? When we think about what's happening and what has happened and what has been allowed to happen, we think we live in a very uh, progressive era. It's progressive compared to slavery. It's progressive uh, compared to the Ku Klux Klan riding around in your communities is progressive in some ways as it relates to individuals getting uh, not being allowed to move into certain communities because the, the banks won't allow you to uh, get loans. Uh, but at the same time, you could also be lynched in a public square in the same manner that George Floyd was lynched. Right. And so when it, what I tell my students is all relative. Yes, we have come a long way, but uh, we still have a long way to go. Historian Leon Litwack framed it perfectly when he said a lot has changed and a lot has remained the same. Uh, That's how I usually frame it for my students. So a lot of what remains the same is based on institutionalized racism, as you mentioned. Can you break down when we hear that term? It's kind of one of those hot terms that people kind of throw around. Break down what institutionalized racism is. I'll try and use, um, I've been reading Eddie Glau's great book, Begin Again, that came out early this spring. And he is writing somewhat of a biography of James Baldwin and how I will frame it in the 20th, in, in, in 2020 is what James Baldwin referred to as the American lie, that America was built on this idea of you know, the, the great ideas, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in the midst of the lie, which is you're building this this society that has these Christian ideas and moral values, but at the same time, there's a group of people who are enslaved, and you have to create this lie that these individuals are not indeed human beings, and they, they do not deserve the same rights and privileges that we as a nation are fighting for. And so the best way to sum up what uh, institutional racism is, is the concept that James Baldwin talked about and that Professor Gloud is talking about is this idea of the American life, that black people from the very foundation uh, of the development of this nation were viewed as non-human beings. And that's why it was okay to enslave them. That's why it was okay uh, to rape these women. That's why it was okay to lynch and kill these individuals and nothing happened. And that's the long history of it. We can treat these individuals differently because they are not indeed human beings. And so once we overcome that lie, we can then become a whole nation. And democracy is something that's beautiful if we do uh, uh, wipe that lie away. And so how, I mean, the lie is so ingrained in the fabric of this country, you know, is it's a constitutional lie uh, that life, liberty, and all men are created equal, except if you are not white. 
uh, is the dot, dot, dot that fell off the page, I guess. And so when we're talking about institutionalized racism and how we can change the system, is there something that we can do as people who are just kind of inheriting and reaping uh, the, the generational curse of being black in America? It's one of those things that when I look at people talk about the system is broken, I'm like, no, the system is working the way it was designed. Uh, it was not made for everyone to have the same opportunities. When you talk about institutionalized racism and the great lie that America was built on, what can we do to um, try to lessen it if it's not starting at the top? So first thing I think, going back to Professor Glau's book, is that we first, uh, people of color, uh, black and brown people, have to first dismiss the lie and not accept the lie ourselves, right? And I think that when you start to think about the concept of institutional racism, it's a damage, a damaging concept across across race, right? One group is born believing that they're superior, and then another group is born believing that they're inferior. So the first thing that black and brown people have to do is uh, get rid of those mental shackles of slavery, this mental shackles that I'm not a human being or that I'm not good enough. Uh, so in in higher education, particularly in graduate education, we deal with this concept of the imposter syndrome. Um, you know, having a conversation with you, you told me earlier you went to University of Alabama, right? You still may have a, a few African Americans who wouldn't even apply to the University of Al Alabama because they have this imposter syndrome that I'm not good enough to go or apply to the University of Alabama simply because I'm black or I'm not good enough or I don't belong at uh, Harvard or, or Princeton or Yale because I'm black. And so the first thing that black people have to do is overcome, overcome the lie itself. And the second piece, or I would say the B clause of that is don't worry about what the other group thinks about you. Don't worry about trying to bring them to where you are. It's their job to overcome the lie. It's their job to see George Floyd as a human being. It's their job to see Reggie Ellis as a human being. It's not my job to convince you that I'm a human being. It's not my job to convince you that I'm good enough to sit at the table. If I'm at the table, I'm automatically good enough to be at the table. So I think what we have to do as a larger society is overcome the lie individually, which would then from my assessment, uh, level the playing field. But if you have one group that's continually thinking that they are not good enough, and then one group that thinks innately that they are better than, you know, it's gonna we, we're gonna continue to have these watershed moments every fifty years or so. You know, you talk about the imposter syndrome. Honestly, I feel like in the black community, so much of that imposter syndrome is transferred because I feel like we are so much harder on each other. Uh, whereas who does he think he is <laughs> going to the University of Alabama? Or you think you're better than me because you did X, Y, Z. And I see a lot of times in our communities also, we were taught racism just like white people were taught racism. And like you said, it's ingrained in us from being educated in the American school system. But, you know, a friend of mine brought up a very great point. She said she was on a flight and it was a black pilot. He came out and spoke to uh, everybody on the plane. And she said she caught herself doing a double prayer <laughs> for this black pilot. <laughs> and she said, why did I do a double prayer? This man had to probably be eight times better than everybody else in flight school. But yet and still, when I saw, oh, Lord, I got a black pilot. 
And I think we sometimes do that when we deal with black businesses and black colleagues are like, oh, God, here we go. So a lot of times I think it's not so much that people realize that they suffer from imposter syndrome, but they definitely transfer that feeling of, well, this is a black person. This is going to be a lesser experience. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, and and so in, in my space and where I have grown as a person, when I, to your point, when I see the black pilot, I'm like, I know that that lady or that gentleman is super prepared because I know the hell they went through in order right. to become the captain pilot. Or I know if I go to the emergency room and the doctor comes out and it's a black uh, lady doctor, I'm like, yes, she's going to take care of me, not just because she's black, but because she culturally understands some of the other issues that I may be dealing with. And so but it's going to take us as a group, as a society, to change our orientation, how we think about the world at large. You know, um, I was blessed in the sense that I, I grew up on a black college campus. My mother worked at Florida A&M University for 39 and a half years. And so it didn't take me 18 to 20 years to see black people in a power position. Right. So course, when you think about the historically black colleges and universities, you have a your, the college president for the most part in, in the, the late 20s, uh, the 20th century and the course in the 21st century are going to be African-American. Your professors, a good portion of those individuals are going to be African-Americans. And so when the students, and of course, your classmates are going to be African-American. So the students have the opportunity to see a successful black person throughout their four or five year experience. I was blessed because my mother would bring me to campus uh, at least once a month. And so my orientation was a bit different than uh, a lot of individuals in my hometown who the only time they saw a black professional person was the preacher at church. Right. right. And and that or the and a black professional uh, woman was the mother of the church. And or and so we didn't see that unless, you know, we were going to uh, these colleges and or, or a very, very small uh, window of what we were told we could or could not do. And and over time, you start to believe it because you don't see the concept of black success in the way that um, white people had the opportunity to see it. And so in speaking of that, the converse of that, and we spoke a little bit offline about this, is with me going to a predominantly white university, I was very well aware of who I was in the microcosm of the world as a black student on that predominantly white campus. And so whereas my friends who are HBCU graduates, they had the opportunity to be nurtured in a way on a black campus that I didn't have the opportunity to do, but also maybe they don't have the most realistic opportunity to learn how to navigate the world, which is going to be not loving and caring and nurturing of them. And so we've had these debates, me and my friends, and, you know, obviously on social media about PWIs versus HBCUs, my first choice wasn't HBCU. It just didn't work out that I went there and I ended up going to the University of Alabama. But it really, really prepared me to go out into the world and know that I'm going to be the black one more than likely. And I feel like sometimes my friends would shrink in the room when they were the black one because they were used to being one of many blacks thriving and, and, you know, doing great things. And then when they were placed in this space where they were the only one, they didn't necessarily feel like they had the confidence to, to speak up. Do you, how do you address that when you're, when you're teaching your students and you had the opportunity to see black excellence from a very young age, transferring that into the world and, and saying, yeah, I'm just as good. 
Because like you well, said, we perpetuate that idea as well. Yeah. And so I think, you you know, as a professor, you have to be intentional about it. Right. And so I tell my students all the time, you know, look around the room. Right. Yes. You were 98 percent African-American here. But to your point, once you leave, once you graduate from Florida A&M University, when you, whether you're going to go on to be a medical doctor, architect, uh, a teacher, because you have an African-American with a college degree, you're going to be uh, tapped to be a representative in many ways uh, of your race. And so you're going to be invited to the table. And once you get invited to the table, in a lot of cases, you're going to be the only African-American um, at the table. And it's your job and responsibility not just to speak for yourself, but to speak for the individuals who are not at the table. And so I would give them examples uh, of me being the only African-American um, at, at at a table and having to, to relay some uncomfortable um, information to a group of individuals who may not agree with what I'm saying, but because I stand firm on my position, they respect and value my perspective, understanding that this is what needs to be said because you put me on this board or you you invited me to this room for a perspective that you don't have. And so I think to your point, that's in being intentional about how you instruct your students because to your point, one part of that is, yes, we are in an environment where it is safe, it, it provides these students an opportunity to be nurtured, where they don't have to worry about white supremacy, but the students are very aware that this white supremacy is happening because they can see the the lack of funding. <laughs> you know, we, we're right across the street from Florida State University. So if they go from our library to their library, they see it. So they're aware of it, but they're not aware of it in the sense that once they graduate, it is real in the sense that, you know, now you are the only one in the room. So now let's see how prepared are you for uh, dealing with the, the lie? Uh, and so... Well, and, and I think that adds, what you speak to adds to the the unspoken exhaustion of Black folks. Because as you just said, when you're invited to the table, you're not just representing yourself, but at the same time, no, we're not a monolithic people. So I can't speak for all Black people. I don't believe in what all Black people believe in. I don't agree, with, you know, but I do know if I'm at the table, I am somehow representing the entire race. And that's what's What's so exhausting, I think, just in general in being in those spaces is you want to be a great representative. Uh, when I show up, I want to be a great representative of women. I want to be a great representative of Southerners, uh, Black people, uh, you know, all these different categories. I check the box off. And that's because the institutionalized system, the standard is if you are not a straight white male, you need to explain why you're here. And it's just, you know, exhausting I, to, you know? I, to your point, I was uh I was reading uh, Michelle Obama's book last year or so, and uh, and I listened to her podcast, and that's one of the things that I, I think resonated over and over again is that you just you don't you know being a black person of privilege, let's just call it what it is, being a black person of privilege, you do have that burden, right? You do have that burden of when you wake up in the morning, as soon as you walk out your door. You don't just represent, in her case, Michelle Obama, you know, you represent the aspiration of a group of people who may or may not agree with you. But it doesn't matter if they don't agree with you. You understand that you still just by being who you are, you represent that group. And I understand that being a black college president, 
uh, uh, excuse me, <laughs> professor, being a black college he spoke professor. Wait a minute, now. let's pause. He spoke it. He spoke it. <laughs> okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You may not have heard it yet, but you, it was a Freudian slip, I'm sure. Go ahead. <laughs> we'll that and we'll rewind the tape back. And remember, I told him he said that by accident. Okay. <laughs> uh, but being a black college professor, I understand that when I leave my house and how I carry myself, and when I, when I, even when I'm walking the street, right? I'm like, I'm very mindful that I have I have impacted over thousands of students and that I have to carry myself in a certain way. And, and even on this podcast, you know, I'm thinking that I have to, I'm representing Florida a University. I'm representing my wife and my daughter. I'm representing my hometown. I'm representing all of these individuals. And some of those people don't care about me, but that's fine because this is the burden, unfortunately, because of the American society that I have to carry because you know the the, the ideas of uh i don't want to go down that rabbit hole but there's so many things that we do carry that's quite frankly unfair give you a prime example and this is not a political conversation but just giving you a prime example look at how different the obamas carried themselves in the white house versus how different the trumps carried themselves in the white house right uh, well, that, just, I'm sorry. Was there a difference? <laughs> <laughs> I had noticed. Is that, so, so, so my point is, imagine if the Obamas, talking about the entire family, had carried themselves in half of the manner that the Trumps carried themselves. Imagine how the black community would have attacked them. Not just the white community. Imagine if the, if, if, if the, how would the black community would have said, about the Obamas, right? He needs to, you, or she needs to, or them kids need to, you know, you, it, the, the list goes on and on. And so, so the way they would know. actually say it is they got, this is how black folks would have said it. They got these white folks out here looking at them act like this. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly. how it Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, it, it, to your point, right? so when you leave the house, right, it's like, I know, I'm representing mama and them, and I'm representing the church, and I'm representing, in your case, UA and all of that, right? I can't, I can't embarrass anyone. <laughs> but, but you know what? That goes back to the whole theme of this particular episode of institutionalized racism. I think that burden, and then by way of the burden, the exhaustion that exists, is because we have not been allowed systematically to be in these spaces. And so that's when we talk about representation matters. Well, that one black person is now representing these masses of black people, where if you just had more black people in spaces where humans exist, they can stand on their own and just be their own black person versus, well, this is the only one they can see from here. So let me not mess it up for all the rest of them that they ain't never looked at. That's true. That's true. I, I, so when the George Floyd incident first happened, I call it the George Floyd lynching. When that first happened, I um, I had a lot of white colleagues and friends email me, call me, text me. They wanted to talk about it. I said, no, it's not time for me to talk about it. Right. This is something that we've been talking about since before I can remember. Now's the time for you to understand that this is what we've been talking about, talking about since before I, I remember. But but the, the thing that I wanted to leave with them, I asked them to think about it like this. If you really value me as a human being and you like me and you think I'm a decent person, this is what I think about people like George Floyd, who I don't even know. Right. right. The humanity that that he was crying for 
if an officer's knee was on my neck and you saw it, how would that make you feel? So to your point, humanize everyone. Don't assume that people are bad just because they're different. Humanize everyone. And if we, we could humanize everyone, I think that we would be further along in I wouldn't have to worry about how people look at me when I leave the house, right? I wouldn't have to because then I'm a human. It's not that, oh, that's Reggie Ellis who's the who has a PhD. It wouldn't matter that I have to have the titles that I have to have on a shirt and tie and things, but I'm I'm conscious knowing that this this in some ways gives me a, a a badge of protection until right. it does. They're always working to become more worthy of life or more worthy of liberty and the pursuit of happiness by getting our education, by being taxpaying citizens, by not being criminals. And so that still goes back to the Constitution when it was written that we were chattel, we were property, we were three-fifths. And so, again, when the George Floyd incident happened and all of a sudden all of our white neighbors were like, wait, what? I didn't have anywhere to be because of the pandemic and I actually had to see here for this eight minutes and 46 seconds and I can't believe that happened. For black people, sadly enough, we were like, oh, did some, did, oh, oh, did something happen? Cause we have a whole list of names that you didn't notice and that we've been screaming about and we've been crying about. And so in 2020, when white people start saying, wait, I didn't realize, and they start having a better understanding. I don't want to say appreciation, but maybe some understanding of institutionalized racism. A lot of them had never heard of redlining or gerrymandering and how those things disproportionately affect black people, voter suppression, all those things that are set up to disenfranchise an entire race of people. A lot of white people, that's the privilege. They've never had to think of that. They've never had to experience it. And what the conversations I had with my white friends is when they say, well, I have black friends and that's not their experience. We've been protecting a lot of our white friends from our experience. We just want to show up and have a good time. We don't want to tell you what we went through to get here and have margaritas with you. Exactly. And we don't want, you know, and a lot of times the the conversation is uncomfortable for us because we know you're not going to understand that burden, right? You're not going to understand. So I'm going to give you a prime example of a similar conversation. So I have a a, a three-year-old daughter and she's in daycare and my wife and I are having a conversation. I was like, okay, in the next year or so, they're going to have these, this system of red, yellow, green. If she gets a, a, a red card, that means she was bad today. If she gets a yellow card, she was almost bad or something like that. And green, that means she was good. And so I had a conversation with my wife. I told her that I'm not worried about that at this age because, you know, my daughter may not be understood uh, by depending on who her teacher is, because depending on her teacher, who her teacher is and how my daughter responds to her teacher, she may go home with several red cards. But if she has a different teacher, a teacher who looks like her and understands this behavior, she may not get a red card because she may say, well, Eva was just, you know, hyper today or Eva was just energetic today. But another teacher may give her a red card because, well, I was Eva acting like Reagan, but I understood why Reagan had a bad day, but Eva had a bad, uh, uh, Eva was just being bad. And so I told my wife that I'm not going to put that label on my daughter until she gets older and she can understand (laughs) uh, those type of behaviors and the difference. Because I think one of the things that we do, to your point, I don't want to pass down in a negative way, what my parents passed down to me, be seen and not heard, right? 
I don't want to pass that down to my daughter to be seen and not heard because what I see, what I've seen from other kids is they are allowed to express themselves. They are allowed to grow. And so when they when they become adults and they enter a room, they own the room. But when no matter how much education we've had, because we've been told by our parents to be seen and not heard, we are going to a room. We are be seen. But we still don't understand how to break through the being heard part. And so that's where we start to change the concept uh, of, of and how we break the chains of the lie. Oh, I love that. And that's true. And it's about all of us not walking into a room and shrinking because we don't want to be accused of being a problem, being perceived as being a problem. We just trying to get along. We don't want no problems. But let me also say, as a child who took home red cards, where were you, Dr. Ellis, to negotiate me out of them situations? Because <laughs> I just was not understood. That's what was happening. Okay, you were going to be all right because daddy said, don't worry about the red cards, baby. They just don't understand you. And that's the support I needed. <laughs> no, no. I, you look... My mama, it wasn't no red card or green card in my mama's house. It, it was, uh, you know, you come home and you come home with a, a note. It was gonna be, it was gonna be more than a conversation. See, <laughs> yeah, uh, same here. I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts, your perspective on this conversation. We're gonna have more conversations here on the podcast as the season goes on. But uh, one of those things about institutional racism and the conversations we've had in 2020 about it is uh, institutionalized racism and racism in general is not an issue black people can stop. It's not our sickness. We are the benefactors of the illness. Correct. So. Uh, again, uh, again, I think that if America really is truly interested in the idea of democracy, the beauty of American democracy, the thing that we want to spread around the world, right? This idea of democracy, the first, the first place that we have to start is at home. Um, I'm working with some colleagues now on this idea of how black people saved American democracy. If you look back at this past election, it was black people in Detroit, Philadelphia, Atlanta, Georgia, Phoenix, Arizona, uh, that saved democracy again. Now, uh, again, that's not a political statement. That was, that was black people saying, look, we are not just voting for ourselves. We are voting for the very soul of America. That if we don't come out and vote in ways that we haven't voted possibly ever, think about that. If you look at state of Georgia for the first time since Bill Clinton, I believe, uh, the state of Georgia turned blue. Will it, will it stay blue? Who knows? But why did these black people vote in the way that they did? I think black people from a historical perspective really love, value, and appreciate what the concepts of that's in the United States Constitution. And I would argue they may value and appreciate it more than some white people. And when you look at it, study Frederick Douglass. What is he talking about? Look at Betty Lou Hamer. What is she talking about? What is King talking about when he gets assassinated? All these individuals are talking about the ideals of American democracy, and they're pushing America to uphold and live the very ideas that some people are not pushing it to uphold. So, you know, black people in America, America owes black people a lot. Uh, as it relates to fighting to preserve the American ideas of democracy. Beautifully said, Dr. Ellis. I'm going to let that be the final word on the debut episode of the history 
of being <laughs> black. And make sure y'all uh, tune in for the next episode. Now, Dr. Ellis, something we want to offer our listeners on every episode is an opportunity to be the change. What can someone do right now? You mentioned some ideas in your conversation, uh, you know, to stop being uh, uh, someone who believes in the imposter syndrome for yourself and others. But what is something, some action items, one action item we can do and our listeners can do to be the change we want to see? One of the things that I will always say um, as an advocate of HBCUs, but it doesn't have to be an HBCU, adopt something, uh, organization, school or church, and give to that organization, school or church, monthly, yearly, because these organizations cannot live or survive if we don't take care of them. I know, uh, for example, think about black radio. They, the black radio stations are dying off. And imagine what the world, particularly the black community, would be without black radio. Um, and so if if that means giving money directly to this black radio so we can have these local DJs telling us on the ground what's happening in our community, find an organization, find a college, find a church, find, a, find something and give, even if it's $25 a month, Give to that organization because it will. Those are the organizations that give back to the, to your community directly. I love that. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Ellis. Thank you so much for listening, everyone, to the debut episode of History of Being Black. And we will be back with a whole lot more this season. You guys take care. The History of Being Black podcast is hosted and produced by Eunice Elliott. Associate producer, Lauren Turner. Edited by Ken Johnson. Executive producers, Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcast. The History of Being Black podcast is a mean old lion and say it loud network production.